It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Exactly. I think that's one of the hardest things as a business owner you have to be open to is really listening to your customers. I had taken something that literally cost me $1,000 to start a business and turned it into a million dollar business in five years. So you don't have to have a lot of money to start a business. You just have to have the will, the drive, and the idea to do that. I may have to start out selling my time just to get started, but I want to transition and move to selling a product or a service or something that I can scale a lot easier than just my time. If you're going to sell more time, you got to hire more people. My name is Stephen Kinder. I'm in Dallas, Texas, and I'm 46 years old, and my company is Loftwall, L-O-F-T-W-A-L-L. And what is L-O-F-T-W-A-L-L? Well, we make room dividers and privacy solutions for offices, workspaces, healthcare facilities, colleges, universities, and even residential solutions. Well, what does that mean in human terms? Let's say you move into a space and it's wide open and you don't really want to go through the effort of building real walls. We make temporary freestanding walls and partitions that are customizable, that are kind of cool, modern looking, can be creative with. And you can put them in your space to give you a sense of privacy or to have some acoustical impact or just a kind of a cool artistic statement within the space. So, Okay. So something my wife would want me to have permanently around me anytime I'm around her. You're saying. <laughs> yeah. If she doesn't want to look at you. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, I don't think she wants to look at me from the hips up. <laughs> so basically it's like a cubicle, like fancy cubicle dividers, you'd say? Cubicle is kind of like the 80s terminology. I think things have evolved. Cubicles were heavy, bulky, connect them and you don't really move them. Our product is lightweight, freestanding, easy to move, easy to customize. It's a lot more creative and cool than maybe the traditional cubicle walls. I think it's almost like opposite ends. I think if we all thought about like how it kind of started, you know, I guess people can easily visualize like cubicles, right? But yours is, when I see them, I kind of think of like fancy libraries or like hotels or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, it's yeah. if you're walking through, you kind of see that artsy feel of a wall where it still has openings and dividings, but you can tell it's kind of a segregated workspace, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people get into a, an open space and they're like, oh my God, what do I do with this space? Especially small businesses. And they need a little help trying to bring some functionality and space planning without having to like build permanent walls. And so that's kind of where our product kind of fits the niche. How long have you been doing this business for? I guess I started this business in 2010, 2009. It kind of evolved out of another business I had. Okay. And so it gets 10 or 11 years. And how big is Lothwell today? We have about 46 employees and our revenue is over 20 million. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. We got lucky. Did you ever think you'd build a business this big? I had hoped so, yeah. I mean, it was always kind of my vision to have a business that would be greater than like a dozen employees and a few million dollars. So yeah, I think that was one of the things I realized after kind of my first business that I started that there were some things I learned that weren't making the business scale. And when I started Loftwall, I said, I want to build a system in the business that's easy to scale for anybody that will hire in the future to take it and run with it and make it a much easier business to scale. So, Okay. Well, again, you said you're in Dallas, Texas. and don't know if the story actually starts there, but I think we got a good general understanding of what you do today, unless there's anything else that you want to talk about before we rewind it to see how you got started in business. No, I'll follow your lead, buddy. Okay. So yeah, where did you grow up? So I grew up in a suburb of Dallas, Richardson Plano area. 
I wasn't born here, but my family landed here in the late 70s and pretty much stayed in Dallas in the suburbs. Had a normal childhood, although I was really into creative arts and architecture. And I thought I was going to be an architect, but ultimately stuck with arts and then, you know, ended up doing some sports and stuff growing up. And so that kind of got me between sports and fine arts. So I wasn't like super fast at swimming. I was a good swimmer. I did get through high school, but ultimately I realized, well, I'm not going to have much of a career in swimming. I'm not good enough to like make the Olympic team or anything like that. So I said, you know, I'm going to follow my artistic endeavors and my interest in architecture and go to design school. And so I went to design school at Rhode Island School of Design in Providence, Rhode Island, and found my way into the industrial design program there, which was kind of like this culmination of design, architecture, graphics, furniture, a bunch of stuff that I found really interesting and intriguing. That's pretty far away from home. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wanted to get away from Dallas and just get a new experience and try some new things. And it was a bit of a rude awakening, but it was kind of what I wanted. I wanted a fresh start someplace else where I can meet a bunch of new people, an entire new place to kind of experience and learn. And did you enjoy it up there? Yeah, I loved it. I mean, Providence is between Boston and New York. So you're a short train ride or bus ride to either city. So for me, kind of being a creative and enjoying art and design, I thought that being able to get away on the weekends and go to New York or Boston and experience things, see shows, see museums, hang out was a lot of fun to really just experience the culture of the Northeast and see you know, what was basically an entire different part of the world from where I grew up. Uh, were your mom and dad happy to see you go? Yes, they were happy to see me go. I was probably a little bit of a mischievous teenager. I got myself into trouble. I kind of pushed the limits as many of us entrepreneurs do as teenagers. So I think they were fine. They were happy to see me go someplace where I could really spread my wings and try some new things. So, Do you have any brothers or sisters? I'm pretty much an only child. My parents got divorced when I was around 10. My father got remarried and I do have a stepsister now. All right. And then from Rhode Island, what happened from there? Well, so when you go to design school, you pretty much think you're going to stay on the West Coast. I mean, you're going to stay on the East Coast or end up on the West Coast because that's where a lot of the creative arts and design and things are. And I ended up kind of wanting to find a job in New York or the East Coast, but it didn't, wasn't really panning out. So I came back to Dallas and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll land in Dallas and stay with my parents for a few months and look for, put my portfolio together, tap the network and see if I can find some opportunities. But ultimately, when I came back to Dallas, I stumbled upon a guy who had gone to RISD as well. And he had had a job at an exhibit and trade show company. And I connected with him and he had said, hey, let's do lunch. And we did lunch. And the next thing you know, he said, we well, you know they're hiring. And so I got my first job through a fellow alumni from my school. And that actually ultimately kept me here in Dallas. So we ended doing that for a few years. So I always say, especially anyone who's listening, who's in college or coming out of college, like that is basically your best networking that you can do when you're coming out. Because people want to help people, especially if they went to that college, they can envision themselves when you know, they were younger. I don't know if you have any advice on that. But for me, that's what I always thought was the easiest way for me even to not even get like, quote unquote, interviews somewhere. But if you wanted to shadow someone for your day or see what they do, just say, hey, you know, I just graduated from like I went to UF or you graduated from Rhode Island. I was interested in your field. If I can maybe shadow you for a day or whatever, and you can land jobs that way. So I think it was pretty smart of you to kind of be able to utilize that. I think I got lucky. And, you know, he and I both were in the same department, especially if you can find someone that you're kind of following their past. Like if you're in law or you're in economics or accounting or business or marketing, find someone who graduated three, four years ahead of you through your alumni network in your city and ring them up and say, hey, can you grab coffee? Can you do lunch and just have a chat? Next thing you know, they make introductions to people and you start finding some opportunities maybe. Yeah. It worked for me. Yeah. And it's not even like, yeah, just doing it once or twice. Especially when you're coming out of school, if you don't have a job, you have so much free time, right? 
you can really do anything with your day that to me, just make an Excel list or today, Google Sheets or whatever, and just start putting that together and start growing it. It's not even to like, quote unquote, grow a business or anything like that. It's just to start learning from people to make sure if you want to go in a certain field, there's a lot of people who maybe wanted to be lawyers because like, it looks sexy or be a cop, right? But then you realize how much other stuff there is behind the scenes that are no glamour, no fun, and maybe it's not worth doing that. So just any field you're interested in, again, especially use that college attribution if you can. I think that definitely helps. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So you land that job and you're working in Dallas. Are you excited? I guess first job? Yeah, yeah. It was funny because it was in this industry that I had never really known much about, which is basically the exhibit and trade show industry. So if you've heard of like the New York Auto Show, CES, you know, all these professional business to business industries have conventions and trade shows and conferences where whether you're a doctor, whether you run a construction company, whether you're a human resource manager, oil and gas companies, like there's hundreds of industry trade shows, thousands of them every year in the US. And I knew nothing about this industry, but come to find out my skills in design and a little bit of interest in architecture ended up being a great fit to become what they need as an exhibit designer. So I signed on to be an exhibit designer, not really knowing anything about this industry and was thrown into working with great companies in and around Dallas to help them build their marketing. They're basically face-to-face marketing, trade show booths and displays that you walk in. It's kind of like portable architecture. So it was really intriguing for me getting out of college to do that. And so how long did you do that for? So I had a about a year stint with that company before I decided it was a large company that had a bunch of corporate things going on, people coming, people going. And once I was there about a year, I kind of got a gist that this was great and everything. And I got some good experience, but I really wanted to go back to industrial design, product design. And I had had some other connections that had developed over the years. So I tapped those to go back and get a, a role at a design consulting job. Can you just, yeah, tell me the differences between the two. I understand what you kind of did at the trade show versus what you were trying to get into. Yeah. yeah. So consulting company works with a lot of clients. A design consulting firm is brought in to really focus on the design of a product or a solution versus a company that just makes trade show boosts. That's all they do is kind of focus on just making their product that they sell to their customers. So most companies in the event and trade show marketing are consultants, but it was just, I went from kind of doing portable architecture to doing, going back and doing product design specifically for companies around Dallas that might be in technology or equipment, they make kind of a hard product that you might see at a store or might be sold through an industrial dealer or something. So, With Leica, businesses can pass security questionnaires from customers, adapt to newer regulations, and maintain all documents in one place. The platform's automation, workflows, and integrations make passing audits and minimizing risk easier than ever. And you don't have to worry about keeping up with new regulations. Every customer gets a dedicated compliance expert to help understand requirements, implement policies, and fill ongoing responsibilities. Leica is also the only compliance platform that offers everything in-house. From tooling and expertise to the audits and monitoring, Leica is a turnkey experience. Historically, compliance has been done inch by inch using different tools for every certification and audit. But Leica was built to help high-growth businesses alleviate stress and take charge of compliance comprehensively. You know what? For people like me, compliance is complex. It's hard to unpack requirements when you don't know what they mean and how to apply them in a way that makes sense for your budget and growth stage. So to make compliance a little bit easier on you, today, listeners get 20% off when they join Leica. Just visit heylica.com forward slash millionaire to get your exclusive deal. That's H-E-Y. L-A-I-K-A dot com slash millionaire to request a demo and get 20% off when you sign up with Leica. 
Energetic Austin here. And these days, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. And from my personal experience, you can't find a qualified candidate faster than you can on LinkedIn Jobs. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash millionaire. That's linkedin.com slash millionaire to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. That makes sense. So it just seems like the trade show stuff would probably get pretty repetitive after a year. I mean, it did get repetitive, but it was also pretty interesting because one of the things that's great about that is you learn a lot about a company that you work on. So if you're working on a week or two working with a technology company, you learn a lot about their products and their market position and what they're trying to do. They're kind of differentiators in the market, what they want to communicate to their clients and customers and the experience they want them to have. And then you jump to another client that might be a wakeboard company and you learn a lot about wakeboards <laughs> in one or two weeks so that you can design a booth or something. So that to me was really intriguing. You're always kind of bouncing around from company to company, learning a lot about their business, learning a lot about their products and kind of how they see the world and market their products. That applied also to the product design field too. Okay. So then why the move? Oh, I think it was just, I really wanted to get back to what I was trained in, which was industrial design, which was basically product design. And also, like I said, that other corporate company had had some kind of issues with people and personnel and some changes that I just decided eh, it was time to move on for me. I got what I needed out of here and it was a fun little year stint, but I still liked it. In fact, when I went to the design consulting firm, I became kind of the trade show guy who would help their clients with little trade show things that ultimately led me down another path to start a business years later in that area. So, so it was something more personal. Because yeah, to, to me, I'm like, maybe you're just doing the same trade show boost over and over, but then it sounds like you're learning a lot there too. But maybe personally, if it was a bosses or something like that going on too, if you're just, yes. you're not feeling that, then that makes sense. Well, I mean, a lot of times when you get into a big company, you have departments and you're in this department with a few dozen people. And when you're in design, at least at this company, we were working a lot with the salespeople and salespeople are just different mental frameworks than design people. Salespeople are very outgoing, extroverts. Sometimes design people are very much introverts. And so there has to be a department manager to manage that well and to kind of keep the salespeople from overrunning the design group. Well, that guy left. And so as you can imagine, things got chaotic because now you had all these salespeople going to designers, asking for stuff, staying late at night, busting their butts, trying to get deliver stuff for a sales guy who didn't really appreciate what he did. He just wanted to get his sales so he could make his quota and get his commission. So it just wasn't a very great environment conducive to doing your best work. I gotcha. And then when you made this move, the other firm, what was the name of it? So I went to a design firm called TXS Design. That was also in Dallas, you were saying? They were actually in the suburb of Dallas, kind of close to where I grew up. And so you stayed there for quite a while? Yeah, I was there for about seven years. I had actually met those guys 
they let me come in and intern. I think it was my senior year over the holidays to come in and help. And so that internship ultimately, when I got out of college and came back to Dallas, they didn't have a role for me. But a year later, they were growing and doing things and needed somebody and they had reached out. And so it just made sense for me to make the jump given the conditions at the other company. But yeah, I was there for about seven years. And were you making decent money? How was the work life for you? Money wise? I mean, yeah, I think I was making around 50, 40 to 50,000 a year as a kind of an entry mid-level designer, which I think was pretty good for the industry at the time. It was a small firm. I mean, there was maybe, there was less than eight people. You had a design leader, a senior designer, and then I was kind of a junior to mid-level designer. So I got my hands into a lot of projects. I had a lot of control. I wasn't pigeonholed and doing like silly little things. I got to, you know, do concept design, meet with clients and customers, pitch my ideas. So it was really more hands-on. There wasn't really like a sales person. I mean, the principals of the firm were the salespeople, but they were also designers. So they had a sense of building a great culture as a small company and knowing what you did well and how you could, you know, go out and get projects and make it really interesting and build a good little small company. So I learned a lot on how to kind of create a nice little small company from working there and working with the principals. What do you think is the biggest thing you learned while you were there? I learned a lot on how to find clients and customers. I learned a lot about how to design a product and understand how to manufacture it to the way things are made and how they're engineered and how to put things together, how to source components and products and materials and things. I also learned a lot about the difference, what I call is one of my kind of big things that I talk to people that want to start a business is kind of this, uh, what I call the rich boss, poor boss mentality. And you know, one of the things that was a downside of the design firm was you had to go out and pitch your projects and then you had to do all the work before you could invoice the customer and then wait 30 or 60 days to get paid. So you're having to do all this work and sell your time, basically what I call sell your time as a consultant before you can actually get paid. I mean, sometimes you can take a retainer up front, but you do a bulk of the work before you get paid, which is really difficult when you're trying to run a business to do that. So you either have to have a lot of cash or money in the bank or a line of credit to do that. So it's tough to build that kind of business to grow and scale. So that was one of the things I took away. Well, you said rich boss, poor boss. So is that the poor boss model versus is there a rich boss model? Yeah. So the poor boss model is selling your time, basically, or building a model that depends on you selling your time and then billing your time and waiting to get paid. The rich boss model is coming up with a system that allows you to sell something infinitely over and over again without putting a whole lot more time into it. And also, you can tweak the model to get paid up front. You can do a lot of things that allow you to get your cash and not have to wait 30, 60 days to get paid from a customer. So yeah, I mean, that was kind of a light bulb went off after working there that made me realize, okay, if I'm ever going to build a business, I want to make sure that I may have to start out selling my time just to get started, but I want to transition and move to selling a product or a service or something that I can scale a lot easier than just my time. Because if you're going to sell more time, you got to hire more people. You know, If you want to sell more of a product or service, you just have to like figure out how to replicate it quickly and sell it. So did they just have the poor boss model the whole time? And you were just thinking of like, if I want to do my own business, I need to figure out a better way. Or what did they even have a rich boss model there? Well, no, no. What was funny is the principles after being there, I think one of the things that happened with like all these little design consulting firms in the early 2000s, where they started realizing, God, we do all this. We make all these products for our customers but we don't make a product for ourselves that we sell. We help make these little startup companies rich by designing their products, helping them manufacture it, helping them sell it. And a lot of these principals, these design firms woke up and said, well, we can do that. Why don't we just, we're solving all these problems and come up with these great ideas for these companies. We could do this. And so I think, you know, at the time, the principal of that firm saw that happening and realized, hey, you know, we can do this too. And so 
around the time I actually left, they started getting their feet wet in developing their own products and bringing them to market and selling them. And it actually changed that company. And that's pretty much their core business today now is they evolve out of a design consulting firm into a product manufacturing company that now has their own kind of array of products. And so that transitioning you said was happening as you were leaving? Well, it had started to happen when, after I'd been there about five years, they had started developing some products for some clients and realizing there was a market need, but that client didn't want to develop that product. So then they said, it was a little internet connection device and they had a client that was making a software rack mount equipment, but they didn't really want to get into the product manufacturing. So the design firm said, well, we'll make the product for you and we'll just sell it to you or we'll sell it to your customers. And that's how it kind of started. And as you saw that, did that make you not want to stay or why did you want to leave? You're kind of seeing this transition. It seems like they're making some good business moves. It wasn't that I didn't want to stay. It was just that I had a few years prior before I left that firm in the end of 2004, I had actually started my own thing. I had kind of started my own side gig selling some display products that I had sourced on eBay. And that kind of started getting its own legs. And after a couple of years of doing that as a side gig, it turned into my full time but it just became obvious that if I was doing that full time, I could be making a lot more money and supporting my family. And I'd had a child in 2003. It was becoming quite obvious that I needed to think about the future. And so one of the things I always kind of thought my father was a business owner, kind of an entrepreneur, and I always kind of had that in my blood to kind of do that. I just didn't really know when the timing or windows of opportunity would open up to, for me to do that. And I kind of had one of those open up for me in like 2002, 2003. And so that's when I made the jump. I started the business, but I didn't make the jump to leave the design firm until uh, the beginning of 2005. So, And you said you had a child. So were you married at the time too? Oh yeah. I'm married. Been married 20 years. And yeah, we had our first child in 2003 and the second one in 2005 and the third one in 2007. So yeah. I mean, that played a big thing. I mean, that was a big risk too. My wife, when I started this little side gig in 2003, I kind of said, hey, you know, this could be a path for me to own my own business someday and have a lot more freedom to be present as a parent and things. And so I started it kind of out of my garage, out of my extra spare bedroom. And I was going to work from eight to five, coming home and working another four or five hours on it and deploying some interesting technology tools to help me with things during the day. And then come home at night and work on it some more and then the next day. So it started out slow, but after a couple of years, it grew legs and started to become generating a good amount of revenue. So you're working eight to five at your night, or I guess maybe nine to five at your regular job. And then what, mm -hmm. from five to nine, working on your part-time job. And then from nine to midnight, working on some babies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or just trying to catch up. You know, it's one of the things I tell students and young entrepreneurs, listen, man, don't quit your day job. You got to go work your eight or nine hours. There's 24 hours in a day, right? So you got to get six or seven hours of sleep a night. You got to go to work for eight or nine hours. What are you going to do with that other six to seven, eight hours a day, right? You can take that time and invest it into kind of doing your own thing, figuring out what you want to do. And you don't have to quit your daytime job. Keep the money coming in, start your side gig, get it going, let that grow until you're ready to go full time. So that was kind of what I did. Yeah. And what year did you get married? 2001. Your wife actually made sure that I asked that question. See if you actually remembered that one as well. <laughs> But to 2001, so yeah, you're about 25, 26 when you got actually married. Yeah. And you're saying you had started, I guess, side business right around that time, maybe a little bit after that? 2002. I think I started the spring of 2002. I started my eBay, what I called my eBay business. Yeah. Did you still have enough time to hang out with friends and other stuff? Because if you're trying to do a side business too, and you're married, I'm just trying to figure out how you're able to juggle what was important to you in business and in life. Yeah. I mean, I had friends. I had some friends. I had some professional friends through like just people I knew. 
And some of those were also people that aligned to our family. They were starting to have kids. And so it was good that some of our friends had also been married. They were having kids about the same time we were. So we still kept a good friend group because we all had kind of similar kids that were being born and starting to get our families growing. A lot of my high school friends, I didn't really, a lot of them had left Dallas and moved on. A few of them stayed around and I kept up with them. I might see them once a month to go grab a beer or play around a round of golf or something. But my focus was providing for my family. And I saw the business and launching a company as a way to do that, to give me you know, the financial means to support and have a nice life, but also ultimately give me the freedom to have more autonomy to do things with my family and be a better father, hopefully. So. And so what was the name of that side business? So that side business, it's still around today. It's called Banner Stands to Go. Is there a website for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Banner Stands, B-A-N-N-E-R-S-T-A-N-D-S-T-O-G-O.com. All right. So we'll have to slow that down in the editing process so everyone <laughs> hears that. But Banner Stands to Go, that's why I was making sure. Some people might make a number two or whatever, but it's actually the letters, okay? And so that was the side business you started and then eventually made the transition to quoting the TX. S industrial. So when were you able to make that? Well, no, no. I was working at TXS when I started the side gig, which was the banner stands to go business. And then ultimately that grew and forced me. It was just, I had to leave so I could foster the growth of this new e-commerce business. Yeah. No, I got you. I understood that part, but I was just making sure like, at what point did you feel comfortable making that transition? Was it a certain revenue number or did you have any employees? Because we know it was just you when you started, but how do you make that transition and how did you know it was time? It was the revenue. I mean, after two years of it, I mean, it grew slow quarter by quarter. But I think by the time I left, I was doing 20000 a month in sales. You know, I was almost making six figures after a little less than six figures. But I was almost I wasn't making twice what I was making at the design firm. But I was starting to say, wow, I was just doing this as kind of a side gig. And what if I did this full time? And so that made me realize, wow, if I was doing this full time, eight to five, I could probably double or triple my sales. And I didn't have any employees. It was just me. So, yeah. Well, that makes it a pretty easy decision, right? If you're making almost yeah. twice as much as you are at your regular job. So were you able to make the sales two or three times bigger if you were able to quit your regular nine to five? In concept, yes. I think because I wasn't really able to give my full-time attention from nine to five to a business where I was getting a lot of inbound opportunities from nine to five, and I wasn't doing a lot of marketing, I hadn't really built a full-fledging e-commerce site. And so the thought was, okay, I need to build a full e-commerce site. I need to go into this business. I need to commit harder. And so even though I was leaving my full-time job, it gave me the opportunity to now double down and commit on what was working for me and doing this e-commerce stuff was working for me. So Yeah. But did that actually happen or no? Yeah. Oh yeah, it happened. Yeah. The next year, the sales doubled actually. And then the year after that, they started to grow. And what happened was working during normal business hours, they started asking me for more stuff. They'd say, hey, we got this trade show. Can you do a booth? Hey, we need some graphics in our office. Can you do this? And so it actually helped me build better relationships with a lot of my customers that ultimately generated more sales opportunities for helping them with more trade show and convention business. So yeah. Yeah, it's good that that happened. But it's also sometimes just like, let's say if you didn't even double or triple, it's just not having that extra thing for you to think about too. Yeah. If it was like 20% or 30% growth, if you're still making twice as much as you're where at your day job, it's worth to have those extra hours, I would think, just to figure out what you're going to do with the business going forward and, you know, also reclaim some of your personal space or life if you needed to. Yeah. And so were you still doing that from your home the whole time? No, I committed to getting an office space, a little showroom office space in Dallas near the design district. And so in January or February of 2005, I signed a lease to get a little like 600, 800 square foot little open loft studio space where I could put up a bunch of product and have a little couple little cubicles. 
And I did that. And then shortly after, I hired my first employee. Who was your first employee? Her name was Dipti. Dipti. How do you spell that? D-I-P-T-I. Yeah, and you said he. I thought it was going to be a she. 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 Yeah, no, no. D-H-I-P-T-I. She was a fantastic young, I think she was Indian, but she was fantastic. Super smart, super insightful, had a great voice, which was important because we were talking to a lot of people on the phone back then. Yeah. We all hear your voice right now. We definitely would rather have Dipti's voice, right? <laughs> sure, sure. But so how did you find Dipti? Craigslist. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've hired a lot of people off Craigslist over the years just because it was easy. And so how did that first year go with the employee? Because that's even a different mindset too. I mean, now you're becoming even more official once you get your own space and you got your first hire. When you hire your first employee, they come in, they don't know anything. And you have to transfer tons of information. And you're the guy that started it. And so you have all this stuff in your head that you just instantly react to. So it really became a shift from, okay, I have to train her to understand all the nuances of things that I need her to do, which was more focused on just customer service and taking orders and charging credit cards online. And so once I figured out what would be the best thing for her to do to give me more free time to focus on where I could produce more income and find more opportunities, it, it became pretty clear where her strong suit was to kind of like an administrator, an assistant, so I could focus on finding new opportunities. And at the same time, was your wife, did she have a nine to five as well or no? No, she had been a teacher, but about then our second child was on the way. And so she was a full-time stay-at-home mom taking care of our two-year-old and then looking at a new one on the way. And did you end up staying in this space for a while or what was the growth of the Banner Stands to Go? Yeah. So the Banner Stands to Go, I had started a, another little thing called Exhibit Associates. It was kind of a brick and mortar thing because I was getting so many requests for people to come by and see something. And then it would kind of blossom into, oh, I need a 10 by 10 or I need a 10 by 20 or, hey, can you come do this thing for me that I needed a space? And so that one space, I filled it with a bunch of product and then was having a lot of meetings. Then ultimately, I was there probably about two years in that space. And then we leased another larger space that was about 2,500 square feet just down the road. And that became a larger showroom and warehouse because now I needed space to store stuff because I was starting to get a lot of people who wanted us to store their booth because they didn't want to take care of it and ship it out. And then I was just getting projects where I needed more room to just set things up and show it to people. What district was it in again? I guess, because I got listeners in Dallas. I just think it's interesting to know specifically. Design district, like up and down Irving Boulevard area, design district, West Dallas area. It's like a little bit west of downtown. There's a lot of furniture creative art studios, art galleries, furniture people, interior design people. And from there, how long did you keep growing banner stands to go? And when did you make a transition to, I guess, loft ball or whatever your next business was? What happened was there was about a four or five year stint there where I kept doing larger and larger projects on the trade show side, which became kind of the core business for Exhibit Associates is kind of what the business really became, more of a bricks and mortar, doing larger trade show business stuff. And that growth continued till about 2009, 2010, when the economic recession hit. And that, because we were, you know, we dealt with a lot of marketing folks, when that economic recession hit, it really took the wind out of the sales on the sales side. But prior to that, I think maybe six months prior to that happening, I had already started to have inklings to start something new. I had wanted to, and part of that was because what I learned from this business was so much of the business revolved around me. I was kind of the hub of the wheel of the business and everything kind of had to go through me. It was a grind. I mean, I was making good money, but then I had to like touch everything. And that had got me realizing that, hey, there are businesses and there's models out there that don't involve you having to be the person who has to drive everything. 
And so one of my passions has always been furniture and I had wanted to start a furniture company. And I thought initially it was going to be like a chair company. I was like, oh, I've always been into chairs. I've loved chairs. Why don't I design a chair and launch a chair company? But as it turned out, we started getting clients. We were building these trade show booths and doing things and they started asking for stuff for their offices and workspaces. And one client in particular had said, hey, we've got this open office. They were a creative agency studio. They said, hey, can you put some walls in our office, just like you did for our trade show booth, but can you put them in the office? And they didn't want cubicles, but they wanted these kind of open space dividers they can move around. And that's kind of where the initial concept for the product was born, for loft wall. And around that time was also when the economy took a real weird shift. And so I tell people now there's no better time to start a new business than when the economy is shit because there's nowhere else to go but up. So fortunately, I had about eight employees at that time. I didn't have to lay anybody off. We just kind of refocused. I shifted a few employees to working on this new venture called Loftwall. One of them was a marketing guy. One of them was one of my administrative persons. I had a couple warehouse people. And we saw about a 40% drop in business from one year to the next. I was able to kind of reshift people to start working on this new business I called Loftwall. If you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers. Old style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest. Build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. Energetic Austin here, and with hybrid work becoming the norm, the strongest teams have two things in common, speed and alignment. Both come from having one hub where everyone can share work and processes, manage projects, and collaborate with clarity. For companies of all sizes, Notion provides one central and customizable workspace that can be tailored to fit any team and bring all teams together to get more done and move faster. Notion is an all-in-one team collaboration tool that combines note-taking, document sharing, wikis, project management, and much more into one space. That's simple, powerful, and beautifully designed. With powerful integrations and seamless navigation, you'll have everything you need in one spot so you can make speed your advantage without the silos and contacts switching the slow companies down. Plus, Notion has a worldwide network of millions of users creating templates, tutorials, and new inspiration. The product is getting better all the time, and you'll always have the support you need, unlike me in the bedroom. Find out how Notion may be the missing piece your team needs to grow, get more done, and delight everyone who uses it in the process. Learn more and get started for free at Notion.so. You can check it out on your own and invite as many folks as you want to see how it works. Take the first step toward an organized, happy team today. Again, at Notion.so. That's Notion.so.
And you thought 2009 was going to be like a weird time if you only had the foresight to see 10 or 11 years later, right? <laughs> exactly right. Well, that's what's funny. You know, you think, oh, there's this giant economic crisis from the housing mortgage market. It's always something else that you never see coming. You always have to kind of prepare for that. What's going to be the worst case scenario? What's the plan B as a business owner if the bottom of the economy falls out for some unforeseen reason like a pandemic? Oh, and it's good that, yeah, I guess that lined with you wanting to look for something else and maybe you started seeing this, some slowdown that maybe anyone, hopefully in the future, because they can kind of remember even, you know, pandemic times too, is this like, okay, once something starts getting a little weird or changing, like you have to keep your mind open of what other opportunities there are. Sounds like you're able to do that, especially when you had a client who was kind of asking you to address the situation too, to be open to being able to do that and not saying, no, we don't do that. Exactly. I think that's one of the hardest things as a business owner you have to be open to is really listening to your customers. And I think that's one of the values even today Loftwall has done really well is they've listened to their customers about what they want. It can kind of create some chaos sometimes. But I think when I was doing the trade show stuff and someone said, hey, can you come to this office? I just needed to do it because I just wanted to make the money and do it. But after the fact, like, oh, we did it for like one or two customers. And they're like, you know, one of them actually looked at me and said, Steve, you should start a business doing this because nobody's doing this. And I was like, yeah. Once that realization set in, I was like, maybe this all makes sense. You know, maybe I just need to dig a little deeper and spend some time. And when the economy started to shift and we didn't have as much work, it just made sense to start refocusing on starting a new business that focused on freestanding room division for offices or workspace. Actually, at the time, it was for more residential spaces. I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to replace the cubicle, but lofts, people who move into lofts and open spaces, creative people, photographers, designers, you know, they want stuff, but they want to keep their open space. So all this kind of made sense. I talked to a few people, it made sense. I thought, oh, okay, I'll just, I'll dabble. I'll see how this goes. So. Yeah. And it goes back to even when you came out of college, I think like when I was saying you have a lot of free time, right, to mm -hmm. network and try to find alumni. And it's like when the economy slows down and like you don't have as much business, you have free time. Don't just sit there and just watch Netflix and chill, right? Like we yeah. should actually be thinking, what else can we do? What's something else that you want to do or that made you excited that a business opportunity or something that maybe a client said gave you time to think about, right? So when you have those slowdowns, those are the opportunities to think of what else other paths can you have that might be able to help make a side business or whatever. So I guess you just displayed that again as you listen to people as you're making loft wall here. Yeah, yeah. And as you did that, so it was all in the same space, basically. You just kind of took some of your employees who are working at Banner Stands to Go and said, hey, let's go try this and yeah. see if we can make this business. Pretty much. I mean, one of the things I had also kind of learned when I got the trade show business up and going, we ended up needing to move. And instead of paying the landlord, I ended up buying a building. And I was able to get like an 8,000 square foot building to put my business in, my trade show business in. And that was great. And now I had a lot of space. And so... Yeah. When I started thinking about this new loft wall business, I was like, oh, I can just incubate it out of our existing warehouse, get it up and going. And that's pretty much what happened. And then I got really interested in commercial real estate or office buildings because I had already bought one. I was using it and I kind of needed, there was another one up the road that came up for sale. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, okay, maybe I should you know, invest in some commercial real estate. And so I went ahead and bought that building too. It was a little 3,000 square foot building. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I can make a showroom for Loftwall. And that's what I did. I ended up making a little showroom space, a little warehouse space for this new business. Once I realized I can't necessarily do it all in this one building, I need to kind of give it its own space to kind of breathe and grow. And so that's what we did is we moved it into its own little building. And so were you making a lot of profit? Because if you're going around Dallas buying all these office buildings and everything? <laughs> all these. <there's> just, <laughs> all these. It's two. 
Well, I yeah, mean, I know. <laughs> yeah, but you still are pretty young too, right? I agree. Yeah, I know it's only two at this point, but you have to be making a decent amount of profit, I would think, to personally be able to go buy these other buildings, right? The trade show business was over a million dollars in sales. I had like eight employees. And what made sense was if I was going to go lease a building that I needed that much space, I was going to spend $5,000 a month on a lease. So I could go to the bank. I had some money put away. I needed 20% for a down payment. But when I ran the numbers, I was like, I could pay the mortgage on a building for 3000 a month instead of paying a landlord 5000 a month. So why wouldn't I just do that? Look at this business savvy guy. Yeah, right? It makes sense, but I like that you just think that way, right? It's very simple. I and mean, some people might just think they're bought into, like, I have to have a lease. Well, I mean, leases certainly have advantages, but there's different tax advantages and structures between leases and buying the building. So it just depends where you are. I mean, the first space we did have, I leased. It became really obvious that I could buy a building in the same area for as much space as I needed and actually cost less. All I had to do is figure out how to come up with 20% down, which I had saved a little money. I had some money in the bank. And so it just made sense. But it was definitely a risk. I knew I had confidence in the business. I had confidence in my abilities over the last previous five years that I had taken something that literally cost me $1,000 to start a business and turned it into a million-dollar business in five years. That gave me so much confidence to realize, God, there's so much more I could do. And this is an investment. It's going to be an investment in a piece of real estate that someday I'll sell. And it's a risk, but you're from Dallas, right? You mm -hmm. understood the market. And then also it's like, you know, we were just coming out of recession kind of and real estate prices, you know, were down. So if you have the opportunity to take advantage of that, then you have to. It's the same thing with the business opportunity. Like with starting loft wall, it's the same thing with this real estate thing. It's like, I think most people when they start off are going to have to use it, do a lease, right? But what happens if you save up enough money, you don't automatically in your head have to be like, I have to sign another lease. Why don't just look at the opportunity of buying a building and then actually paying the mortgage on it? And you said, like, even if you weren't buying the building, it still was less, right? You had to come up with 20% up. But then at the end of the day, once you're eventually able to sell it, then you actually have money in it as well. So, Absolutely. And you get the depreciation, you get the write-off. There's a lot of reasons if you look at the big picture and what the investment is worth. And honestly, real estate, 10, 15 years later from making some of these decisions, it's been one of the best investments I've made. Other than coming on this podcast, that's the best investment you're going to ever make. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. All right. So as you're doing Loftwall, what was the official kickoff here? We're going to say of that. 2009. I mean, we went to a trade show because I had so much knowledge of trade shows, which I can take a whole other tangent on telling people, like, if you're wanting to start a business and you don't know much about an industry, go to a trade show. Like, find the industry trade show and get in there and just walk and talk to people. But anyways, people saw the product thought it was valuable and would buy it. And so, yeah, that was 2009. And how did that grow over the years? I mean, the first couple of years, it was a little slow. I mean, which wasn't a surprise. I was trying to spend time on getting Lawful up and going. I had my event business, my trade show convention business that was still kind of, was still a good business, still had employees and stuff. I was trying to keep that going around 2010, 2011. And so I was kind of spending my time between two businesses, one that was making a good amount of money for me and the other one that I was like investing and putting time and energy and resources. I was literally incubating it in the other business. And I found out that it's pretty hard to make a product and sell a product from the ground up and that you need to find your channel. You need to find your way to go to market and sell and you need to figure out how you can create kind of a, a sales force to sell your product. And so I stumbled into some individuals who educated me about the contract furniture industry and the way products are sold and specified in that industry. And ultimately, that's where we pivoted loft wall around 2011 was to go into the contract furniture industry. So I know that's probably, <laughs> I can hear the eyes glaze over now. What is all that he just said? 
Exactly right. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Actually, I was writing down like, because it, it kind of brought me back to your first business to the, or your first job. The same thing that happens here. Yeah. How were you able to find your clients? Because this is the most important part for any business. You can't just start, like if you just start a loft wall and not have any plan of actions or thoughts, but it sounds like you're able to pivot to find your ideal clients that actually buy things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how were you able to do that? Well, I went to some trade shows and I talked to people and I came across a gentleman who knew the industry really well and offered to provide some assistance and consult and help us position the product and help us build a sales channel, basically marketing the products to office furniture dealers, architects, and interior designers. Did you just do that through like magazines or was it online ads or what? At the time, online ads weren't quite as big as they were now. You didn't really, Facebook wasn't quite there and other things weren't quite there. But, you know, it was a business to business industry. And so a lot of business to business goes through independent sales reps. So building a network of independent sales reps across the US and Canada became the core way to market the company. And you did do some publication advertising and some other types of advertising. But really, the largest investment was in people. And that is one of the things that is really important when you're growing a business. You've got to have great people. And so that was what I learned from this person. He was tasked to help us build our sales rep network across the U.S. and Canada. Who was this special person? Do we want to give him a shout out? John. John did a great job. Yeah. <laughs> Does John have a last name? Hannigan. John Hannigan. Okay. He's a good guy. I feel like you just made it up. John, a guy named John. Okay. <laughs> no, no. John Hannigan. John and Joe. All right. So yeah, this guy. Okay. So because you're B2B as well. So that was kind of smart. Like it versus, again, that's why I was wondering, like, maybe it is a business catalog or I, I didn't think there was a lot of online ads or whatnot at that point in time, but it's just always interesting to see how people were able to find those initial clients. But one other thing that I was wondering, because as you were making this transition, I think you had already done this kind of before and your banner stands to go, but how were you able to actually find manufacturers to produce these actual products? Oh, I had a design background, so I already had a deep breadth of knowledge of things that were being made around Dallas or Texas. Because from when I worked at the industrial design firm, we spent a lot of time helping local companies source products and knowing like, where do you get sheet metal parts? Where do you get wood parts? Where do you get things, you know, injection molded? Part of the product when I designed it was based off of an aluminum extrusion profile. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so remember when you were a kid, and you used to take Play-Doh and you put the Play-Doh into the thing and push it down and it would extrude out this linear form that looked like a star or yes. something like that. Yes. That's basically extruding metal, right? We do the same thing in manufacturing metal. And there's probably five companies around Dallas, Fort Worth that do that. Every major metropolitan area has aluminum extrusion companies. And basically they take, they melt aluminum and push it through this thing and they make this long thing. And that was the core structural element for the wall systems for loft wall. And so I had come across those companies being in Dallas. And so I just knew this stuff. Like I just knew these companies that made this stuff. So for me, it was just easy to kind of source that product locally. I mean, there were other companies out of Chicago, other companies out of Atlanta, other companies out of all of the U.S. that make this stuff. But in Dallas, it was just easy to find it locally and have it made locally. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a huge advantage, right? Because like if yeah. I want to do this, I'm like, or most people, it's like, I feel like finding the manufacturers or trying to figure out who does it is probably like the hardest part, it almost seems like. If you don't have a background in it, it is the hardest part, right? And so everybody thinks, yes, there's a lot of great things you can have made in China. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just wanted to have it made in my backyard. I was very much about, let's keep it made in America. I mean, not every single element that we sell at Lawful is made in the USA. There's some fasteners and components. 
But a large part of it is made here. And there's some advantages to that when you do it as a business. I mean, you can do some different things. You don't have to buy huge amounts of inventory of something that you don't know that's going to sit in the warehouse if it's going to sell or not. So there's a lot of reasons to kind of weigh the pros and cons of having something totally made overseas versus finding somewhere onshore to make it in the U.S. So you can put made in the USA on it as well. Yeah, yeah. Made in Texas. I would say that would be the yeah biggest advantage. It's like at least take advantage of that and put that on your website or something, you know, put it somewhere that makes you feel good if you're going to have that done as well. But yeah, I think the biggest thing is what you said. Obviously, the price, it costs way more to have it done here in the U.S., but you don't have to buy the huge quantities that you would in China. So, I mean, did you ever look at the cost benefit analysis of getting them made in China versus in Texas? I went through that exercise probably a dozen times over the years. And ultimately, because of the type of product we make, it's somewhat customizable. Like we may get an order from a company that wants 15 of one size or make an order from a company that wants three of another custom size. So part of our product is very customizable. And because of that, we have to be able to make a lot of it here on demand in a light manufacturing environment. A lot of our raw materials allow us to do that. But over the years, yeah, I mean, I did a cost benefit analysis on, well, should I make this like one core product in China, ship it over, pay the transportation fee, then store it and hope it works. And at the end of the day, they kind of equaled out. And so what became obvious is if I'd made stuff here in the States, yeah, it might cost a little more, but I get the flexibility and the freedom to have a more dynamic supply chain with the product than having to be reliant on someone halfway around the world. I can't drive to their offices or their factory and sit down at the table and talk to them if I have to next week, right? Having that relationship locally had a lot more value than trying to develop a relationship halfway around the world where I had to buy containers of product at a time and cross my fingers and hope it got here and that it was exactly what I ordered. So... Plus, you'd have to go into the industrial real estate space and buy your own industrial building, it sounds like, just to store it all, huh? Yep. Yep. It takes a lot more space to inventory a lot of product. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a real estate joke there for you, Stephen, since you're buying all the real <laughs> estate there. But no, but actually, I think the exact same way you do on that, like once you start ordering from China, if you're trying to do that, it really is out of your hands. You are kind of crossing your fingers versus if you're going down the street, like even if it does, again, cost you a little bit more. It's worth not having to sit on the inventory if you can't move it, right? What happens if you, if you end up actually making it in China, having it finally come over here? A, there could be something wrong with it, right? Which mm -hmm. there could be wrong with something anywhere, but you could actually in Dallas, you could go down the street and let them know, right? Versus you go get it from China. You think they give a damn? Yeah. Once the product lands in the US, you have no recourse because it's all paid for and it's sitting here. You've paid for it. And if there's a problem with it, you have to now negotiate how to reconcile it with somebody halfway around the world who even if they want to fix it and correct their reputation, it's going to take six to eight weeks to get it done. And you got to wait for it to get across the ocean or unless you air freight it, but it's insanely expensive. So I guess this is the difference too. When I said like, for me, it's the hardest part of finding manufacturer for you since you were in Dallas, you knew all that. That's what you knew. It was easy yep. for you. But then for both you and I, you and I both don't know someone like specifically in China that like I'm born and raised in China and know Chinese, right? And like, if I had that inlet on a manufacturer, I knew the inroads of like my family works at a manufacturing spot and they can get it shipped over here, then use what's to your advantage. And exactly. it sounds like both you and I are kind of thinking the same thing. We don't have that advantage. Use your advantage and you took what you did and were able to do that and build a successful company. Well, but it doesn't mean you can't hop on a plane and go over there and find it. Again, I know lots of people that are entrepreneurs who have made the investment. They went to Asia, they found the factories, they built their products, and they've been very successful. It doesn't mean it can't be done. Just for the product we were trying to do for Lawfall, it just didn't make sense. 
given the way we thought about the business. So I always encourage people to go to the ends of the earth to find the best fit for what they're trying to develop or design or have manufactured. But for us, at the end of the day, it just made sense to do it all here in the States. And so it worked out for us. Trust me, I understand most of the products that we even all are looking at right now. If you turn around everywhere, it's probably in China, right? Like half of it, probably what you're looking at. But it's like understanding what you want to do. Like, is that what you want to be? Like, if you want to get into that business and you want to, you don't mind traveling to China and want to make those relationships, right? Mm -hmm. But you didn't necessarily want it to do that. I don't want to do that if I was going to make a product. But you like Dallas, you like building those client relationships, right? So, you know, if you're open enough that, hey, if you really want to just order something from China and get that made, there's businesses, yeah, there's tons of businesses that do that. The majority of actual consumer products that you see are made in China. But just realize, hey, if I go do that, I probably want to make the investment of going to meet the manufacturer and understanding that process and realizing that's the business I'm getting in versus just crossing my fingers and ordering from Alibaba. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of guys who just get on Alibaba and can pick the product and have it shipped to them and they get it. And it's not exactly what met their expectation. I know a lot of guys who do that who have learned a lot of lessons about that. But they do that initially to find a factory. They do that initially to build a relationship. They do that initially to get the ball rolling. Once they get it, then dig in with who sent it and find the manufacturer and start working on the real product. So, yeah. All right. Well, and so as just lawful, as you said, grew over the years, wasn't there, an, I guess, over this time period, another business that you ended up growing out as well? You know, I kept having the bug for kind of real estate. And so, and what was interesting is, you know, there was the kind of these synergies from the trade show using the kind of trade show product to build a wall product. And now I'm dealing with interiors and offices and spaces. And then I kind of came across the co-working industry, which is kind of shared workspace. Being in the workplace environment for 10 years, I really saw the opportunity that shared workspaces was going to have. And I, again, was kind of interested in real estate. And so around 2014, I found a building in Dallas. But I was like, oh, this could be a really cool building to put a co-work space in. And you could have some lease space and maybe you could do some lofts. And it was kind of like the next evolution of me buying buildings. And I thought, well, this should be a venture for me to take on, but not alone. So I wanted to find a partner who would help me take it on. So that kind of became the next business for me. So called Good Work, Good Coworking. Okay. And so, yeah, you started that a few years ago or when? So, well, Good Coworking officially started in like 2017, 2017, 2018. Okay. And as you did that, were you a little bit worried that, because you still said the other company too, the original company that you had started, Banner Stands Ago, and then you had, this was Lawful, and this was kind of your third one, the Good Work, right? Yeah. Were you worried that you're spending too much time doing all these other businesses or were you just, you would have someone else kind of take over the other ones? Like, tell us how you're able to divvy your time between like figuring out how you're supposed to run through businesses here. Well, the Good Work, I had a partner, my close friend and co-founder, Amy. She actually did work for me at Loftwall. I got introduced through her to her through someone. She was a marketing consultant for Loftwall in like, I would say 2012, 2013, 2014. She helped us on the marketing side. And after we went to a trade show, I learned about her passion for co-working. Kind of the thing I started to realize was if I can find people who are really passionate about something and invest in them and give them the opportunity to kind of live their passion, it can be a win-win. And so I kind of realized that, you know, she really wanted, she was all about co-working. She really wanted to launch a co-work space. And I said, if I ever had the opportunity to do a co-work space, I would partner with her and help her build her passion. And that's what we did. So, and kind of building on top of that, I think it goes back to people, right? So the reason I was able to do all that was because I think 
around that time, I probably had 15, 17 people working for me. And I had just a great team of people. And I had a vice president, a woman who had stepped in, and I kept giving her more control and loft wall, the ability to run the day-to-day. And so as I did that, it made it easier for me to shift my focus to other kind of ventures and things I wanted to do. So which was go, taking me back to real estate, taking me back to kind of, you know, a commercial building, building a, launching a co-working business. Have you had a chance to listen to any of the past group calls or anything like that yet? Yeah, I've listened to a couple of them. Even if somebody had a business that was completely unrelated to anything I was doing, they were still throwing in invaluable nuggets of information just constantly. So I've been listening and, you know, I'd like to start getting in on some of the group calls. I'd like to start really engaging with other people in the community and just learning and devouring as much as I can. But it's bad when you do it to your wife, though, because then you have to crash on the couch. (laughs) See, I have to sleep on the couch every night, too, man. See, we're the same. Was that helpful at all, Gary? Say no. (laughs) Worst experience of my life. One star review. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I'm used to those. Wish I could leave no stars. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, no. Thanks, guys. It was a really great experience. I feel like there's a lot to reflect on. So, yeah, thank you. Okay. And so as you did that, now you kind of mainly focus on good work today or what's your day-to-day like today? Today's a funny story. So the vision I cast for myself like 10 years ago is, hey, I wanted to have some businesses. I wanted to have some real estate. I wanted to like build a portfolio of businesses or real estate that would generate income for me. So I'd have a lot more freedom to do what I want. And so today I have a lot of autonomy. I'm actually going back to grad school. And that's been able to happen because of been able to hire great people. I actually, a couple of years ago, hired a CEO to run Loftwall. So it took me out of the day-to-day. After running that company for almost 10 years, I just needed some time. I needed someone else to come in and take the baton and take it to the next level. And so for me, I've come to the realization that I'm a creative kind of starter. I like to get things up and going, but I don't like really running the businesses. I'm more of kind of a, an incubator kind of starter kind of guy. So right now, I, you know, I have a couple of these businesses that are kind of in the portfolio of things I do, and I keep in check with them on a weekly basis. But really, I have a lot of freedom to keep looking for other opportunities or investing my time. And so I decided to go back to school for two years. Nice. And I guess if anyone's in Dallas and want to look at your co-working space, what's the best way for them to figure that out? Is It, look, it looks like goodcoworking.co. Yeah, goodcoworking.co. Yeah, is the website. Yep. Okay. So anyone can check that out. But I guess it kind of goes back to when you started your first company. It seemed like you wanted to do that to have the autonomy to spend time with your family and whatnot. Did your family not want to spend time with you after you finally had made this plan and envision? It sounds like this would be the perfect opportunity. You didn't want to just retire and stop working. I would say, you know, probably three years ago, I started making a lot more time for my family. It never kind of goes as planned. Started the first business. I was like, oh, you know, I'll have a lot more freedom and time. But as The business grew. It just kept pulling me in more and more, which I still had weekends with my family. We never really had to work a lot of weekends. And I was very cognizant not to let my employees or my team members work weekends because I feel like family time is really sacred on the weekends. But from eight to five, eight to six, eight to eight every day was me working. Yeah. So I think I did. My role was to provide a great income for my family. My wife agreed that she would be primary raising the kids and you know, the weekends were ours to enjoy as a family. So, yeah. How old are your kids now? I have an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old, and a 14-year-old. Has it worked out the way you thought it would? It has. It really has. I mean, it it took a little longer than I'd hoped, but I feel like 
right now I've been able the last couple of years to really be there for them as teenagers and spend a lot more time and connect with them and do trips with them and just experience life with them. You know, they're at a great age now where, where you can really be friendly with your kids once they get out of that teenage age. They're going through their own challenges and tribulations as they're growing up in this world we have now, but it's good to be there for them and not be as focused on running a business as I was maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, I've tried to spend more time with my parents lately as they <laughs> age, you know, and I was, yeah, yeah. I told my uh, mom and dad, I'm like, yeah, I can start coming over. You know, my dad likes to cook because he's about to retire and try to figure out stuff for him to do. And I'm like, yeah, we can start coming over every Thursday, have dinner. You can cook us. And my mom told me after dinner, our first one, she's like, how about every other Thursday? I'm like, okay, I guess you don't love me. as I, <laughs> I guess you don't want to spend as much time as you said you wanted to spend it with me. So I think they're enjoying the retirement age and maybe not seeing me as much. Maybe it's a little too much, but it's always interesting just to look back that you said when, right when you started your first company that it was to spend time with family and whatnot. And it seems like you've reached that opportunity, but you know, I guess things change. So, but what's been different than... I guess what you thought it would be. Yeah. Did anything work out or any advice for raising kids while you're starting to have your own business? Well, I think you absolutely have to have a spouse that supports you 100% and be open and clear in your roles in the family. I mean, I think my wife and I, we talked about that early on and I love, I love my wife. She's a fantastic person. Wait, wait, wait. Your wife loves you? <laughs> I don't have one of those. So I, okay, here we go. Yeah. She still loves me after 20 years. You know, it's probably because of the awesome kids we created together. But I think, you know, we were on the same page about understanding our roles in the marriage and loving each other and building a great family was what we wanted to do. And that took definitely being a provider and then also being a caretaker. And I think we both understood our roles predominantly in those areas. You know, I think when I started the business in, or I got into like going off on my own in 05, I thought, oh, well, that's going to be great. I, I can do the four hour, the Tim Ferriss four hour work week, you know, but the reality is it doesn't really quite work out that way. It takes a lot of hard work and a lot of grinding it out to get to a place. And I probably could have stopped and rested and not launched the law fall business in 2009, 2010 and been like, oh, okay, this is great. I can just, I can have all this extra time. I can do other things. But then I just don't think that was going to get me to the next level. And I think that's one of the things as someone who grew up playing sports, someone who grew up being competitive, someone, I'm definitely an achiever. I have that achiever mindset and I want to kind of constantly take things to the next level, grow things. I've learned in the last five years to kind of give myself a lot of permission not to have to feel like I have to do that, to be okay with where I am and have a sense of gratitude for things. So I think smell the roses, enjoy where you get to enjoy the time you built. Because there's a lot of business owners I see that are just even grinding it out in their 60s and they haven't taken the time to enjoy life. And they've probably built great businesses, but they get to like retirement age and then they have all this free time. Now they don't know what to do with themselves because their kids are all gone off to college. They want to travel. So they travel for a year, but then they get tired of traveling and then they just feel like they don't have much else to do, you know? So I've met a bunch of those guys. I didn't want to really want to go down that path. So, uh, you know, I feel like I'm kind of in my mid forties, I've made the good decision now to kind of, I've reached a plateau. I want to go back and continue the learning and figure out what the next trajectory is for the next 20 years. So. Sounds like your hardest challenge yet. After I got done with grad school, I'm like, I'm not taking another test ever again. I'm done with tests, memorizing, but I can't believe you're going back for that. So what, what was the reasoning and logic behind that? I've always enjoyed helping others. So I think there may be a tangent in there for teaching. And I think a master's degree would help me do that. I think the design world has changed a lot in 20 years since I got out of design school. There's all these kind of buzzwords like design thinking and human-centered design and how we think about the way we design products or services. I mean, the internet really didn't exist when I left college. I mean, it was in its infancy. There was like the World Wide Web and AOL. 
And in the last 20 years, like interface design and everything about digital design has evolved and has really changed the way the design world thinks about how we approach our methodologies and philosophies about designing products and services and interfaces. For me, I've been kind of caught up in this whirlwind of trying to pay attention to that, trying to build a business, trying to have a family. And I just feel like if I'm going to cast a vision for the next 20 years, I need some time to kind of get back into the learning mode and look at what I've done and kind of reacquaint myself with where things are. And I felt like doing a master's program would give me the time and space to do that. And the university in my backyard here has a great program that focuses just on that. So, And you got a free place to study at goodcoworkings.co, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got all these interesting things I can like bring into the periphery with it too. Like, you know, I've got this co-working space. I've got some real estate. I've got this business. So they're all kind of great things that kind of synergize in some way with the opportunities I have in front of me. So. Yeah. And I guess we had talked too. you said you like to give a lot of talks at I guess I don't know if it's local colleges or you've given several. I didn't know if you had any tips as we were kind of closing for anyone who's listening, who's an entrepreneur, or any other pieces of advice that you'd recommend they heed to? Well, absolutely. I think, you know, when I talk to entrepreneur classes, I often like give them a handful of takeaways. And most of these are just experiences I've had from myself. I mean, you don't need a lot of money to start a business. What started it was like, I think like in the late 90s, Inc. Magazine had an article called Starting Great Businesses for Under $1,000, right? And I thought, oh, wow, you can start a business for $1,000. I kept that and I kind of would always go back to that. I kind of had a journal and I'd write some stuff out. And I was like, oh, you know, when that business comes along, I can probably start it for $1,000. And so, yeah, I think it ultimately turned into that kind of e-commerce display product banner stands to go business. So you don't have to have a lot of money to start a business. You just have to have the will, the drive and the idea to do that. But also, it goes back to don't quit your day job, right? Don't quit your day job to start a business. If you're doing something that's giving you a good income, do that job eight hours a day. When you leave work, start refocusing on other things. And especially now in the digital economy with all these resources and tools out there, there's a ton of stuff you can do while you're on the job to leverage technology now that we just didn't have 20 years ago that I think is great if you're trying to start a side gig. A lot of software companies start out that way. You know, they sell their time. But eventually they figure out, hey, we can create a software product. We can package that and sell that, you know, 100 times a day instead of selling our time. And so I think that's one of the things to consider is, are you going to sell your time? Or are you going to come up with a product or service that you can scale and sell quickly to really grow the business? The other thing that you actually touched on that I loved, Austin, was your time, right? So your time is your time. And if you invest your time in building a business, it's going to pay huge dividends for you years or decades from now if you stick to that business and it grows. Because your time is your time. You don't have to pay anybody else for it. So putting the time, your time and energy into kind of investing in where you want to go and how you want to grow the business and learning, I think, will pay dividends down the road. So well, thank you for all the tips there at the end. I guess I was trying to look back and Thank you for saying I made a good point finally there. <laughs> but I was going to say, looking back, I'm not going to say it sounded easy, but I was just trying to think, what was the hardest thing that you actually had to overcome, would you say, that you thought we could learn from? I think part of it was thinking I knew everything or thinking that I had the answer for everything. And part of that is, I think it was just my own education. And sometimes as a problem solver, I was educated to solve problems. So I always thought I had the answer for everything, where sometimes I needed to be open to collaborating with others, listening to other great people. Instead of me trying to figure out all the stuff, I needed to find experts and great people. And I started to do that as I got into running a business five, seven years. I realized, man, there's just, there's so much great people out there. I need to bring them into the fold and stop thinking I can do all this myself. And that was kind of that epiphany I had that also helped me kind of reframe how I wanted to do the loft wall business. So, 
Okay. It makes sense. And now you're saying now it's coming full circle as far as maybe you thought you knew everything and now you don't. Now you're going back to get some more education just to make sure you can learn some more, huh? Yeah. And also, I would say going to trade shows. It's, it's weird. I found my way into this trade show industry, but every business I've been part of or invested in or advised in, it's like the one place in the world you can meet every company face to face, learn about them, kick the tires, meet the executives, learn what the company's about. And you can do it all on a giant show floor in a matter of a few hours. You leave with this immense wealth of knowledge and contacts that you can then decide, oh, what makes sense? What's a fit for me to use and what's a fit to do? So in a weird way, I found my way into that industry. And it's been the one thread that I think has been kind of keeping me finding great knowledge and resources is by going to conventions and trade shows. Another tip, I guess, too, especially anyone who's younger, if you're doing that, not even looking for a job, you should go up, ask these people for advice or how they got into where they're going. But then after the trade show, here's what everyone usually does. They'll email, hey, nice meeting you, whatever. But if you actually like write a handwritten letter, like really quick note or something to them and thanking them, imagine how much you stand out. That's what I used to do. Just yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing your story. I appreciate it. I'll be in touch, you know, or something quick and easy that you can do that I think shows appreciation and definitely makes you stand out too. So anything with a trade show, if there's a, you know, niche or industry you want to get in, go in there and then use these, I think little tactics can definitely help you stand out and hopefully learn more and make sure you want to do what you actually think you want to do. So, all right, Stephen. Well, thanks again for coming on and share your story. If anyone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? They can, on Instagram, I'm at steven.kinder, S-T-E-V-E-N dot K-I-N-D-E-R or steve at loftwall.com. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Is it Steven or Steve? Steve at loftwall.com, but the Instagram is steven.kinder. Yeah, I know. I go by both, so. I <laughs> know, <laughs> I was making sure. So if anyone's reaching out, they didn't know which one to say either because I see Stephen here. I'm like, okay. So Steve or Stephen, it's it's cool either way. Uh, I think the Loftwall is steve at loftwall.com, yeah. Yeah, if not, I guess people will get a bounce back and they'll know, try Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> Without a P. Yeah. Well, great, man. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. It was fun. I really appreciate it. I have a lot of gratitude for you and really appreciate the time you've given me to do this. So thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more product-based interviews, then consider these episodes. Episode 75 with John of Sticker Giant. Episode 73 with Steven of Tower Paddle Boards. Episode 67 with Jamie Price of Great and Beer. Episode 63 with Dr. Dan Cohen of Breathe Right Strips. Try episode 61 with Andrew of Agora Northwest Coffee Systems. Episode 58 with Alijo of Blue Smart Luggage, a Y Combinator company. Episode 56 with Corey Tall of Climate Sleeping Bags. Or try episode 54 with Mike Otis, where he talks about running a family door company for 20 years. Or episode 52 with Chris White of Shinesty Clothing. And episode 49 with Josh Sherman of Yeah Nice Beanies. Wait, 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 hold on. Before you go, I'm sure you know by now we have plenty of Patreon episodes to fill your passion bucket up with more business interviews. So check that out. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.